This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage And I will be his God, and he will be my son. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there'll be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river the trees of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of these trees were the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. and They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. This is God's word. Please be seated. Thanks, Rue. It's quite the test for reading scripture. So we're changing or we're developing our name uh, from City Church to New City. We're not changing the core of who we are. Uh, We're not utterly dissatisfied uh, with who we are. We're not changing our name from City Church to Third Prez or City Church to CO2. Um, Thank you. A couple of you got that. Uh, we're changing it from City Church to New City. I think it's like Danny going to Dan, uh, Madeline or, or Maddie going to Madeline, uh, Kimmy going to Kim. I think it's just a natural reality that God is calling us to. Sometime around college, and there's debate as to when I went from Teddy to Ted. In my mind, it was very early in college. In Trisha's mind, it was, it was very early in our marriage. But either way, uh, and unfortunately, she has proof, like love letters I wrote her and signed as Teddy like as a 25-year-old. Um, <laughs> So when I transitioned, uh, when I transitioned from, from Teddy to Ted, and if you call me that, I'll punch you. 
okay? It's over. Our friendship, if we have one, is over. And uh, it took about six to nine months to make that change. And I think it's going to feel like that for us around here. I think in the first month, it's going to be a little awkward and maybe even a little embarrassing to say, no, our name's New City. And at the same time, I think six to nine months from now, it will be sort of frustrating and almost infuriating to be called City Church. So I want to let you know that we're going to take the time we need to transition well, to transition all the aspects of who we are, and we're going to be patient with one another. And we're truly just going to develop and mature into this new name. So as I said, I'm going to preach uh, a sermon on New City, and, uh, and that's what we'll do with our time this morning. It's a little different. I will not uh, meticulously walk through this text. I will summarize it at the beginning of the sermon, and we'll move on from it. But I wanted you to get a picture in your mind of the new city to come. So the three ideas for this morning are the new city to come, uh, the new city that is, and the expansion of the new city. The new city to come, the new city that is, and the expansion of the new city. So first, the new city to come. In Revelation 21 and 22, John records a vision. It's a vision of the perfected reality that is the future for God and for his people. 21.1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And so again, due to our purposes uh, this morning, I, I'm not going to meticulously walk through this, but I'm going to just begin to summarize what the new city that is to come, what, what it's all about. The Bible tells us that we can't possibly imagine what paradise will be like with Jesus. But in telling us that we can't possibly imagine it, it's not as if the Bible says it's wrong to try and imagine. Instead, literally from the beginning to the end, the Bible invites us to try and dream about and envision what this glorious future will be like. Try, try to imagine with me. This is what is present in the new city that is to come. First, John tells us that the new city is a massive and beautiful physical reality with an amazing garden and an amazing tree and a beautiful river running through the middle of it. When talking about the dimensions and the details of the city in, in verses 9 through 21, a part of the text I didn't have read to you for the sake of time, but, but when John's talking about the details of the new city, it's hard to know if he's speaking literally or figuratively. But if he's speaking figuratively, that means that what actually is going to be is grander and better than what he says. He says this, the city is some 1,300 miles in length, width, and height, symbolizing power and flourishing. And he says the streets are pure gold, transparent as glass, symbolizing value and purity. That place in our world that is most dirty will be most clean in the new heaven and the new earth. He says the new city has a 216-foot high wall surrounding it, symbolizing security and refuge and rest. And he says it has 12 massive pearls for gates, picturing beautiful community, flourishing justice. He says the gates will never be shut, though. No one will ever attack this city. He says the enemy is no more. As I said, there's a spring of water flowing from the throne of God, flowing from God himself through the middle of the city. And this river will satisfy the deepest desires and thirsts of any who drink it. Those of who drink of it will forever be satisfied and content. No one will ever thirst again in any 
way, residents of the new city will never experience poverty or lack, whether physical or spiritual. Lastly, for our purposes, what will be present in the new city? Uh, John says that there will be representatives from every nation walking around. And he says the leaders of every nation will bring into the new city the unique and diverse aspects of their culture, saving us from probably the monolithic eternity we would give ourselves. He says it's going to be incredibly diverse, incredibly creative, very unique. And so while it's exhilarating to think about what is present in the new city to come, it's actually uh, more exciting to me and easier for me to understand what's not going to be present in the new city because I, I taste it every day. John tells us in the first verse of chapter 21, the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. And with the first heaven and the first earth, so many of the realities that we hate will be gone. He says in verse 4, death shall be no more. Verse 5, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Mourning is a word related most often in the Bible to repentance. He's like, there will be no more confession of sin. No more guilty consciences. No more shame. He says, in addition to this, there will be no, no crying, which is a word for lamenting over loss. He's like, there's no loss of life, no loss of relationship, no loss of wealth, no loss of home, no loss of family, no loss of friendship, no droughts, no famines, no floods. If there are tsunamis and hurricanes and, and, and thunderstorms, it is only to display the majesty and the power of God, and it will not affect us in any negative way. He says, there will be no reason to cry anymore. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Most literally it reads, he will remove the tear ducts from our eyes. We won't have the capacity to cry, and there will be nothing to cry over. He said, nor will there be any pain. A word for physical, emotional, psychological, and psychotic pain. He says, no concussions, no fibromyalgia, no migraines, no hemorrhoids. That was for a couple of my friends. You know I'm praying for you. <laughs> no broken hips, no depression, no anxiety, no Tourette's, no seizures, no ALS, no neglect, no abuse, no oppression, no kidnapping, no rape, no cults. Nothing in the world to cause us pain. He says the former things have passed away. And further, as to what is not present in the new city to come, he says there will be no night. There'll be no darkness of any form. He said, put your man-made lights and lamps away, 22.4. He says, not only that, God will put his lights, the sun and the moon and the stars, he'll put them away, 21.23. He says, the glorious brilliance of God will keep everything well lit all the time. There'll be no temple in the new city, the new Jerusalem. Now, the temple in the old city was the place where, where God's people could go and they could, could bring a lamb and the lamb would be slaughtered in place of them, showing that they needed atonement for their sins. The temple was the place where you could go and after offering a sacrifice for your sins, you could be led in worship for the grace of God by the grace of God. He said, there's no temple in the new city. Jesus is the temple. He was the lamb that was slain to bring an end to all animal sacrifices and since God will be everywhere in heaven, there will be no need to go to the temple to see him. We'll be with him all the time. And lastly, as to what's not present in the new city, there will be no one there who is unclean. 
There will be no one there who does anything detestable and false. 21.27 does not say that, that no one will be there who has done detestable and false things. It says that in the new city, no one will do detestable and false things. And so as a man who has done and continues to do detestable and false things, I'm quite eager for this reality. Theologians say, non passe pacare, not able to sin. No need for repentance. God will save us to the uttermost. Finally, for, for the new city to come, let's define exactly who will be there with God in his glorious and peaceful and diverse and brilliant and beautiful and eternal city. And uh, I would just kind of stop here and say, if you're visiting, particularly if you're seeking God or if you're wrestling with the doctrines of grace, which means you're wrestling with God, uh, if you're here and you're visiting, uh, this is a peculiar Sunday. I want you to know that you're wanted. I want you to know that you can come back. I want you to know sort of how odd this is. But if you get nothing else this morning, you have to get this part. This is what you're seeking in God, and this is what it means to wrestle with his doctrines of grace. Who will be... In the new heaven, new earth. Who will be in the fulfilled kingdom of God? Who will be in the new city? Who gets to be a resident? And so if you've been paying attention, you might say, well, uh, if no one in there is unclean and no one in there can do detestable and false things, I'll venture a guess to say that unclean, detestable, false people in this life do not get into that life. And that might makes sense to ordinary ears, but that's actually the exact opposite of what the Bible says. Listen to who John says is in the new city. First, residents of new city are not there because they paid for it in some way. Chapter 21, verse 6. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Second, those who are there didn't do anything in their life to achieve entrance. It's not as if at some point in their life uh, they were not good enough to get in and then at some point in their life they were good enough because they did something. Chapter 21, 27 says this, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life may enter. John tells us elsewhere in Revelation that the Lamb's book of life was written before the foundations of the earth saying that in our life we didn't do anything good or anything bad to keep us out or to get us in but that God decided to bring us in by sheer grace. And then third, at the end of chapter 22, verse 14, not read to you for the sake of time, John says that those who have the right to enter by the gate of the city, you're going to have to go through the gate, 216 feet uh, tall walls is, is extensive. Those who have the right to enter the gate of the city are only those who wash their robes white in the red blood of the lamb. John, John is saying, he's letting us know that the clean Beautiful, true Jesus, as the spotless Lamb of God, died for sinners. And the way you get in is to take your dirty, filthy robes to the cross and plunge them into his blood. And they miraculously turn white. He is saying only those who don't try and pay for it, only those who trust Jesus for cleansing and forgiveness, only those who drink of Jesus for life and don't try and pay him back. They're the ones who can walk through any of the 12 gates. 
So that's the new city to come. And if you've paid attention, it's a people and a place. John is recording his vision that he uh, had told to him by the angel, which is telling to him the words of Jesus. He tells us what's there. He tells us what's not there. He tells us who will be there. And it is exhilarating. It is something to long for. Uh, but, But at the same time, maybe you're saying, come back to current reality. The world I live in, my city, my place, is a place of sunburn and skid knees. It's a place of hit and runs, of droughts and famines and tsunamis and hurricanes that do destroy. It's a place of anxiety and depression and unrest and discontent. It's a place of cancer and amber alerts and hellish cults and deadly riots. So are, are you saying that in our new name, new city, that you want us to simply sort of with an escapist mentality uh, think only about the future and sort of live blindly about the reality that we live in Today, are you wanting us to be so heavenly-minded that we're absolutely no earthly good? Haven't you told us for four years that we're city church? We've been asked by the elders in our denomination to plant a church downtown with its mission directed towards Center City, Orlando. Well, secondly, let's consider what the Bible says about the new city that is. That was the new city to come. This is the new city that is. The new city uh, in the New Testament is clearly taught this way. While not fully here, while not fully consummated, while not fully realized, while not physical in its essence, the new city is here now. In fact, in Revelation 3, John is writing a, a variety of churches, and he's writing them letters about the here and now realities in which they live. And John says this to the church in Philadelphia. He says to the faithful, The new Jerusalem, the new city, is coming down out of heaven. He says, present tense, it's coming down now out of heaven. So a new city is not simply, according to John, something that's in the future, but it's a reality now. The apostle John in Revelation, I can't substantiate this, but it's it's fascinating. He will use, to, to talk about the perfected reality that we're going into, he will use the language of the kingdom of Christ, the language of the new heaven and the new earth, and the language of new city. And I'm not saying they're synonymous, they're perspectives, but they're almost interchangeable. He has these three phrases for this reality that we're going to. Jesus, in his ministry, did not speak of the new city, but he spoke extensively of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And so with just a little bit of thought and study and understanding, we can begin to see that what Jesus says about the kingdom, we can also say about the new city. What did Jesus say about his kingdom? Jesus said that his kingdom is both here, it's here now, and yet at the same time, it's not here. He said, my kingdom is already, and it's not yet. That there's a need for my kingdom to be consummated, but that need does not mean that it's not here now. He says it's already here, and it's it's not here fully. And, And at this point in history, where there are hearts and relationships and communities that are loyal to him, he says, my kingdom is present. And he says, where there are hearts and relationships and communities that are not loyal to me, my kingdom's not there yet. But it's a now and a not yet sort of thing. But not only is it now and not yet, he he teaches clearly that his kingdom is growing. His kingdom is succeeding. His new city is flourishing. His new city is winning. It's pushing out the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of death, the kingdom of deception, bit by bit. Luke 13, Jesus asks rhetorically, what is? is the kingdom of God like? 
He says, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? And then he answers his own question. The kingdom of God is like a pinch of leaven or or yeast that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And and so leaven multiplies and and infiltrates over time. And, And a pinch of leaven, even a small pinch, while starting small, could eventually over time leaven an entire lump of dough. And this, this is a massive amount of dough that Jesus uses in this teaching. It could feed hundreds of people. And Jesus is saying that he, in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, his ascension, he's saying, I'm the pinch. And, and he says, now by the ministry of his spirit, we're leavening the whole batch of dough. It's here. It's not fully here. It's growing. It will succeed and conquer. So think now about the prayer Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6. He said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And this is, your name can be, can be hallowed in this way. Your kingdom come. And this is how it comes. Your will be done. So you're the king, you're in charge, your wish, your desire, that is what is being done. Your will be done. What does he say? On earth as it is in heaven. The Lord's prayer is essentially a prayer for more kingdom, more new heaven, new earth, more new city in the here and the now. It is here. It is not fully here. It is present. It is growing. It will conquer. When we live our lives more fully for the king and when more people give their lives to the king, New city grows. And Jesus says, it will eventually overcome all that is dark and all that is wrong. Think about the extensive descriptions I gave you of the new city and listen to this. When for his grace we worship God more and when more people worship God, the new city comes down. When we relate more fully to God as heavenly father and when more people relate to God as gracious heavenly father, new city comes down. When we're more at peace with God and ourselves and others, and when more people are at peace with God themselves and others, new city grows. When because of the mercy God has given us, we live more merciful lives, and when more people live merciful lives, new city grows. When we seek more and more to protect the vulnerable in our city, and when more and more people want to protect orphans and widows from attack, new city grows. When we fight for justice and for truth, and when more people fight for justice and truth, new city expands. When people live in the light more, when they're more honest, when they're more true, when they're more authentic, and when more people live in the light, new city expands. When we, because of the joy that Jesus gives us in the gospel, when we seek out those who are in pain and we do whatever we can to reduce and relieve the pain, and when more people Seek out people in pain to reduce the pain. New city grows. And when we have more and more celebratory parties, and when more and more people party because the gospel's true, new city grows. Now, a quick qualifying remark. The author of Hebrews, except for John and Revelation, speaks more of the city to come than any other author. The author of Hebrews warns us. He warns us from making the mistake of thinking that the physical cities we live in, he he warns us from thinking that they are part of the essence of the new city. 
In chapter 11 of Hebrews, we're told that we're to be like Abraham and Sarah. Listen to, to what the author of Hebrews says. We are to look forward to, so vision. We're to look forward to that city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He's saying we're looking forward to that physical place. And then right after that, he says we are fundamentally exiles and strangers in the earthly, physical cities in which we live. And that we're to constantly, this is his words, desire the better heavenly city that God has prepared for us. Chapter 11, verse 16. And if we're tempted to say, well, that's about Abraham and Sarah. Those are Old Testament heroes. But now the New Testament people of God, we're, we are, we're to think differently. We're, we're, we're tempted to say stuff like this, but, but we can now transform our city. We can now redeem our city. And, and, and the author of Hebrews says in chapter 13, for us to consider this, the context is New Testament Christians, not Old Testament faithful. He says, for here. So he's saying in this life, on this earth, for here, we, we Christians, we have no lasting city, but we seek vision, the city that is to come. And so to summarize, one day Jesus will return. No one knows that day or that hour. He will bring with him the consummated new city described as a people and as a place in Revelation 21 and 22. But even now, that new city is already present and it is increasingly coming down. As we give more of our lives to Christ in loyalty, and as more people give loyalty to him through conversion, his city advances. And Jesus says that we are to effect the places where we live like salt and light. He said in John 17, we just read it this week, the people of God are in the city, but they're not of the city. That we're to live out our heavenly citizenship, Philippians 3.20. We live out our heavenly citizenship by pursuing the city in which we live to have an effect there and to bless the city and to bring grace and truth and mercy and justice and relief and peace and even prosperity to the city. We're not called to escape from our city, but instead we're called to live such radical and distinct and peculiar and beautiful lives in our city that others come and say, I want to glorify and worship your God because while odd, it's beautiful. So, so look closely at the new logo on the screen behind me. Let's use it as an illustration. New city is not written out within the upper bars that symbolize the heavenly city to come. This reminds us that the new city is not only about the future, but it's present and it's growing. Also, new city is not written out within the lower bars that symbolize present Orlando. And this reminds us that new city is at this point a peculiar people, exiles and strangers, whose citizenship is in heaven, but that citizenship affects the city in which they live. And the effect that we have on the city is symbolized by the W having an effect, uh, bringing about a difference in the C of the city. You get it? So new city is not just in heaven. New city cannot be in the physical structure of Orlando. But if we're the new city, Orlando will be radically altered. That's what the Bible says about the new city that is. Our vision statement, quite simply, is this. You put it on the screen. Our vision is the city beautiful. And by that, we ultimately mean that the city that John envisioned in Revelation, the city that the author of Hebrews says to seek, that is the city that we envision. But as we live by the values and the paradigms of that city, Orlando 
will actually become more beautiful and therefore move towards its motto or its tagline. The way for Orlando to become the city beautiful is for you and I to beautifully live out of the city of God. Next, our volition or our consistent choice most simply is this. We will pursue the city beautiful. That when we have a choice, we will choose to pursue the city beautiful. And you say, well, does that mean we're going to pursue and seek and look forward to the heavenly city or we're going to pursue Orlando? And the answer is yes, both, absolutely. Like some conservatives, we do not want to be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. And like some liberals, we don't want to make the mistake of placing too much hope in the here and now. The Bible calls us to a third way. As citizens of heaven, value what Jesus valued. Live as Jesus lived. Pursue the lost. Pursue the least with the gospel in word and deed. If we really pursue heaven, we will have to pursue our city. All right. Now, finally, the expansion of the new city. And by the way, this is just a commercial for next week's sermon. It's, it's a short point. If you're saying, I want to be a part of that, if you're saying, how do I participate in that, uh, you're saying, I hate darkness, I hate crying, I hate pain, I hate death, I hate seeing people enslaved and in pain. If, if you're saying with me, how can my life make a difference? How can my life be more engaged and more helpful in the expansion of that new city? Well, this is what we're going to think about for a second. We're going to ask ourselves, how does the new city grow? I've already indicated to you that it's here and that it's growing. And now I'm saying, by what mechanism does the new city grow? So in other words, how would Jesus answer the question, how does new city grow? Well, fortunate for us, the disciples asked him a question eerily similar to the one I just stated. Right before he ascends to heaven, the disciples say, will you now restore the kingdom? Jesus says, it's not yours to know how all this plays out, but you're going to be my witness. And then the last thing he says, according to Matthew, is this. This is the mechanism by which the kingdom grows, by which heaven comes down, by which new city prospers. All authority, that's kingdom language, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. How does the new city grow? How does it expand? How does it multiply? Go and disciple. He doesn't say go and build buildings. He doesn't say go and buy really large sound systems and pack as many people into worship as you can during the weekend. He doesn't say preach to them on Sundays and hope they figure it out during the week. He tells the leaders of his movement, Go to the people and disciple them. So you're like, okay, what does that mean? But first, Jesus knew how to preach to the masses. You know that, right? The gospels are chocked full of him preaching to thousands of people. He could have said, well, what you want to do is find a hill and some water. You want to make sure that sound travels really well. And you just want to preach to as many people as possible. He didn't say that. He, he didn't say, have them listen to pastors online on the internet. He, he didn't say, have them read a bunch of books in isolation. He said, go and disciple. He says it's one on 12, maybe even one on three. I've noticed recently in the Bible 
that Jesus had 12 disciples, but he had Peter, James, and John. And when you see how the disciples are listed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're always listed in these cadres of four with Peter, James, and John at the top with the same guys. And I actually think he's saying it's probably more like one on three. Jesus discipled his disciples for three years. And when they said, are you going to restore the kingdom now? He said, yes, essentially. He said, this is how you do it. Go do, what I, go do for them what I did for you. Think about it. It included sermons. It included mission trips. It included partying and festive gatherings. It included acts of mercy, exhortation and rebuke, tons of forgiveness and patience. It included just about everything because it was life on life, living life together. It was not meeting throughout the week. It was living life in a way that you had meetings through the week. And when Jesus had finished his earthly work with his disciples, his answer for how the kingdom spreads, how new city multiplies, was break up the 12, send them out, and repeat the process over and over and over. So when Jesus called the 12 disciples disciples, and then when he said the last thing I have to tell you before I go is that I want you to go and disciple, what would the disciples have thought? Well, I guess that means he wants us to go to worship when we're in town. And if small groups don't get in the way of our lives, maybe we'll do that for a little while. And, and we'll just kind of go out and hope people want to consume our product. And we'll try to make it as great as possible. And no. It's like, well, whatever we just did for three years. Do that for others. And then he says, require them to do it for others. He says, teach them to do everything I commanded you. He just commanded them to go and disciple. Even in the Great Commission, there is a multiplication of the movement. And then like leaven and dough, the new city will multiply and spread and expand. So next week, we'll spend our sermon time together thinking more deeply about what we're going to call our detailed or descriptive volition statement. It should be on the screen behind me. This is our volition. This is our choice. New city will pursue the city beautiful through a network of churches that disciple the found in community to seek the lost, serve the least, and live their call as community. Let's pray. Jesus, we do thank you that, in fact, there's incredible patience in the gospel for us and for me. And Lord, I thank you for how long-suffering you have been with me. I thank you for how you have waited uh, for me. And as I think about how much you have grown me over the past five years, I cringe to think about what I'll discover five years from now. So I just thank you for how uh, overwhelming your gospel and your grace is, that you have saved us from the penalty of sin, that you're saving us from the power of sin. And one day, the presence of sin and death will be gone and we'll be with you forever. Lord, I pray that you would use this name change, that you would use maybe even this sermon and next week's sermon, that you would use this body of believers to bring light into the darkness, to bring life where there is death, to bring community where there's isolation, to bring truth where where there's deception. Would you be pleased to expand your new city and your glory and the freedom of your people? Would you be pleased to use us in ways we cannot fathom and understand, but in powerful ways? Would you give us the grace to multiply the faith that you've put in us? Would you give us the grace to multiply the community that you've given us? Would you give us grace to multiply this church into other churches here in Orlando and around the world? We will thank you and we will fall more deeply in love with you. In your name we pray, amen.